Coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world, and broadcasting from WETS out of Johnson City, Tennessee, it's the Storytown Radio Show. I'm Jules Corrier, and I'll be with you on this journey through story tonight. Well, it's May, a time when we're usually emerging from our hibernation, but this year we're continuing to stay home out of concern for ourselves and our neighbors. News outlets and social media speak of the sacrifices that we're making right now. Homes are turned into offices, schools, and gyms. It's a different world, no argument. But in my years of collecting stories, I've heard a lot of tales of sacrifice in which people literally lived in a different world, across an ocean, in a country with a different language and different environments. I've heard stories of people leaving the shelter and safety of their homes to fight in wars, to fight fires, to fight diseases. And I've also sat in the historic cemeteries of towns I've worked in and sat with and listened to the silence of those who left their safety of their homes, only to return to their final resting place in the cold earth. You know, May is also the time that we honor these lost voices on Memorial Day. Usually for our program, we go out and we gather stories from community members to create our monthly productions. It's something we've done for nine years now, but that process is still in transformation. This month, to honor the sacrifices made in the past as well as currently, we're bringing you a radio play. Now, this is one of my favorite all-time one-acts that I have ever written. I think it's going to feel familiar to you right now because the stories in the play come from real people— our neighbors here in Jonesboro and East Tennessee, they are or were members of the Jonesboro Senior Center, though several have now left our earthly plane. But they shared the treasures of their stories with us that we get to pass on and keep those memories alive. These are stories that come from times of great sacrifice. Before we start that, we'd like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission, the Wild Women of Jonesboro, Main Street Cafe and Catering, and Nancy Hope and Odie Major for sponsoring this program. The spirit is alive wherever story is told. And now, enjoy Not All That I Carry, based on the stories of the Jonesboro Senior Center members. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It was 1941. I was 18 years old when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. I signed up and went to basic, like most men my age. I was trained as a medic and shipped overseas. We fought our way east, starting in London and making our way to mainland Europe. I was, I was there, there at the bulge. I, I don't like to talk about it. One month from today, it'll be... 73 years when it began. 73 years. I don't think I spent five minutes in the time since talking about it. But maybe, maybe it's time now. The, the Nazis hit us hard. It came as a total surprise to the Allied forces. They were everywhere. There wasn't a true front because they were all around us. I had a big red cross on the front of my helmet. I remember I put mud over it because it was making me a target for the snipers. You take out the medic, 
You also take out the eight or ten guys he's trying to save. I didn't need to advertise. The only time you felt safe was when you were back to back with a buddy in a bunker. They were everywhere. I'd pull wounded to a safe spot if I could and try and patch up ten inch wounds with tape and bandage. It's all I had. Supplies were thin and the Nazis were winning. As the wounded and dead mounted, I looked around and thought about what a cold place this is to be to be buried. The siege lasted about a month, day and night. Weather finally cleared, and our planes broke the cloud cover. We finally had reinforcements. We had supplies. We gained the ground, but at a great cost. It was really close for a while, though, but we knew we had a job to do. We could not allow the ideology of the Nazis to take over the world. We dug in for the fight, do or die. It was a cause greater than ourselves with great sacrifice. After it was over, the snow-white fields hid the horror underneath. I was shipped home. But my work wasn't done yet. When the European theater was over, our unit headed out to the Pacific. I'll never forget this. We were headed to a location which took us through the Panama Canal. When we were approaching the canal from the Atlantic side, we got news of the bombing of Hiroshima. Some wondered if we should turn around, but they pushed forward. When we reached the other side of the canal on the Pacific, we got news of Nagasaki. The war was over, but there was still work to be done. I served on an island for a little longer before being sent stateside in the hospital. I attended patients, wounded, and those with diseases. I finally got my orders to return home after being on the island for about a year. When I got home, I celebrated my 22nd birthday. All I wanted was a glass of fresh milk. I hadn't had one since the day I left home. Pure and fresh, and it tasted so good. I still drink it today, but I don't think I've tasted anything as pure and fresh as that last glass of milk. I guess that's it. This is what I want to tell. But it's not all that I carry. That story came from Vern Dougherty. He shared this story with us shortly before he passed away. Thank you for your service, Vern Dougherty. I remember you. Up next, we have a story from Harvey and Madge Crane, which we collected as they celebrated 73 years of marriage. This is about their secret elopement. Is that all you have? You told me to pack only what I could carry. Now that I see it, it doesn't look like much to start a new life with. Oh, don't worry. It'll be plenty. Wait. I can't go without letting Mama at least know I'm okay. I'm leaving her this note. We're going to get married. Don't worry about us. That was the announcement that would change my life. Well, Madge, we're in Greenville now. The justice of the peace is not too far. You sure are quiet. Is everything all right? 
This is what you want, too, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. I think I'm just excited. It's my wedding night. I've never had a wedding night before, so I don't know what to say. Mm, I hope Mama doesn't worry. You, you left a note, didn't you? Oh, yes. I wouldn't run off and get married without letting her know I might get in trouble. Don't you worry. Nobody's getting in trouble with anybody. Why, I've already cleared it with my brother and his wife, and they'll let us live with them until we get ourselves set up. They're also going to be our witnesses. Oh, that's so good to hear. I'm glad to know that there's at least some people out there who don't think we're making a mistake. Oh, they think we're making a mistake and that we're way too young. But they figure we're going to do this with or without them. And at least this way they can keep an eye on us. Well, we're here. Ooh, looks like it. Are you sure? I am. Are you? Well, I'm the one that carried you here, aren't I? Come on. Let's get married. We went in, woke up the justice of the peace. He wasn't even cranky. Of course, I have a feeling he was used to it. We're not the only couple to decide to elope in East Tennessee. His wife came down and met us, along with my future brother and sister-in-law. In a few short minutes, we were married. That was 73 years ago. And we're still together. If you were to talk to me or my girlfriends, you'd think everyone around here eloped. We met in March of 1963, late March. I was in the Army, stationed at Fort Detrick, Maryland. My brother and his friend Kenny Miracle had girlfriends in Kentucky. They wanted to drive out and see them one weekend, and they wanted me to help them on the drive. There's no interstate back then, so it took a good 13 hours. I told them if they could make it worth my while, I'd go. I didn't want to get down there and have nothing to do. So they set up a blind date for me. This wasn't the first time one of us girls was set up on a date with a gentleman that was nice enough to help Kenny drive. He was dating my best friend after all, but I'd had a bad experience one time and I decided I wasn't doing it anymore. Irene, please, we need you. Jane got called into work and can't meet up with Kenny's friend. Henrietta, you know how I feel. I just won't do it anymore after last time. Oh, Kenny assures me that Larry's a perfect gentleman. Please, don't just do it for me. Do it for your country. It's patriotic to entertain the troops. Well, I couldn't say no to that. I walked into the room and noticed that Larry had tattoos. Now, in 1963, in Kentucky, you didn't have tattoos. So I pulled my friend Henrietta aside, and I told her, I can't take this boy down to meet my mother with tattoos. She's just not going to have it. Oh, please. You're the only one we have left. You just have to. It's only three or four hours this afternoon. I took him down to Mama's, well, across the street, and Mama raised her eyebrows at those tattoos. But in the mountains, then, you were very polite, and so was he. My goodness, those are colorful tattoos, Larry. Would you care for some coffee and pie? Mmm, this is the best chocolate pie I ever ate. May I have a second piece? 
my mama always told me to appreciate any slice of heaven I come across. The minute the praise for the cooking came out, mama was sold. So she just didn't look at those tattoos and she's been in love with this boy ever since. And then we went over to our friend's house to catch up with Kenny. We just got to talking and it was probably three hours and I asked her to marry me. Why, yes, of course, Larry. I'll marry you after only three hours. <laughs> of course, I laughed at him because who does something like that? But she agreed and I held her to it. I just thought it was funny, but you insisted. Because I was serious. He wasn't joking. We started writing letters and telephoning and all that. And then, on my high school graduation, I come down with an engagement ring. This here right here, this seals the deal. Now, in Kentucky, you have to wait three days to get married. Well, we can't have that. Here's the car keys. Take my car. Mama wasn't going to let me wait. So we eloped to Tazewell, Tennessee. And we took my mommy with us. She promised to make chocolate pie. We couldn't say no. So that's the story of a three-hour date I didn't want to go on that turned into a marriage that's lasted 54 years. I told you I was serious. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. Now, this is a different kind of memory about how the past comes and goes at will. An Alzheimer's patient goes time traveling almost every single day. Sometimes, if you're lucky enough, you can get a glimpse into their travels and a better understanding of where they are right now as their memories take them on journeys that don't always include us. This story begins as Pam and Doc Johnson visit Doc's own doctor, and he calls Pam into his office. It's the early 1990s. Pam is in for a journey of her own. May I see you a moment, Mrs. Johnson? Sure. How did everything go? Physically, really, really good. You're both in good shape overall. But I have something to tell you. Your husband, even though he's relatively young, appears to be entering early stages of something called Alzheimer's disease. That was the announcement that would change my life. I was working at a nursing home when this happened. I knew what that meant. Our life together would start to change forever. Now, where'd it go? What are you looking for, sweetheart? You know, my, you know. It started out with the little things. Car keys in the freezer, the remote control on the washing machine, Yes, it was gradual. You know, it's just wonderful. What's wonderful, Doc? How Mama always has the right thing to say. Just the other day, she told me. And it made me so grateful to have a Mama like that. You know, she was really my aunt. But she became my Mama. She raised me from a baby. Yes, she did. A wonderful woman. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't be opening doors for me all the time without her. Well, yeah. Is that right? Remember that time I came over when we first started dating and I brought over some groceries to cook dinner. And I opened the door for both of us to go through. 
<laughs> then your mama called you over. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And she said, now you treat this lady with respect and always open the door for her. And since then, you opened the door for me and just about everybody at the senior center. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's right. Now, where did it go? Doc and I have been married 28 years. We met at a single stance. He came up to me and said, What's a young lady like you doing with a boy like me? You did. You remember that. Oh, <laughs> that made me laugh so much. I wanted to get to know you more. And we did. We talked all night long until the morning, and I rubbed your legs and feet after work. Oh, no, 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 not that night. That was after we got married. That night, we went outside to talk and get some air. Your sister and her boyfriend were at the dance, too. Remember, she came outside. That's right. That's right. Mary, Mary came out. She said, I was just checking up on what you were doing, and I told her that what I was doing was getting ready to kiss you. Doc, oh, but you remember that? Of course I do. How could I ever forget? I was just telling Uncle Jack about that. Uncle Jack? Just talking to him about it this morning. Now, just, where is it? Doc is more than just forgetful now. He spends a lot of his days with people from his past that he loves and who loved him. People who aren't around him anymore, like I am, but who are still with him, you know, in his memory. We've been married 28 years, and I wouldn't change a day of my life. Every relationship has its challenges, but every good relationship has love enough to see those challenges through. Our anniversary is coming up in just a few days. We always like to go dancing. Sometimes when we dance, I know he's not dancing with me. He's with his mother or his sister Mary. In his world, he might even be walking to church with his Uncle Jacks while doing the box step with me at the Music on the Square. But the important thing is, we're dancing together. That's what love is. I just hope somewhere in there, there's a place in his memory for me. Here, finally. Here it is, finally. What is it, Doc? Anniversary mm -hmm. card. 25 years, right? 28. That's right, that's right. I'm just trying to make you feel younger. Oh, Doc, you still know how to win my heart. I love you. May I have this dance? Always. That's some hard times, but there's also hope. I learned about living in hard times and hope when I was a little girl. It was 1931. The market had crashed a couple years before, and Hoover came on the air to talk about a plan to help. For most of us, it was too little too late. It was a plan without enough energy behind it and no way to enforce. Nobody had energy, nobody had hope. Now I've lived without money before, did so most of my life, but how do you live without hope? Hoover now, he was on to something, using a radio show like that to talk to lots of folks who don't take in a local paper. But someone else used the radio better. 
when he was elected, he used it in a way that gave us a glimmer of hope. Mr. Roosevelt. I remember the first time listening to him. It was in 1933 after he was elected. He called them fireside chats and talked about plans for a new deal. It would put people back to work, help families get enough to eat. It would build roads and schools and bridges, but mostly it was hope in a time when nobody had a job or food or security. I signed up for what was called commodities. So did a lot of other families in the community. The ladies got together and shared recipes for the food that were distributed. How to do things with foods we never dealt with before, like grapefruit, figs, and peanut butter. The first taste of peanut butter I got was then. I liked it. When future farmers came to our school and showed us a peanut we could grow here, I got enough to plant an acre. I worked that field to keep the weeds cleared and the ground clear. All except this one patch that was overrun with crabgrass. We found out the crows had an appetite for peanuts too, and they were all over the field. My brother and I had a slingshot, and we regularly took a few of them out a day, which was an extra bonus, because meat was so scarce back then. We brought them crows home to Mama. I'll tell you this. I'd heard crow was not good eating, but Mama cooked them up with dumplings, and she made it taste just like chicken and dumplings. There was some talk going around about the three C's, but... I didn't know much about it. It was one of Roosevelt's things that had been helping a lot of boys. The country was full of boys that had no place to go, no money, nor any idea of where their next meal was coming from. I, at least, had a home to go to and a, a family that helped each other. But after a couple more years, things got real slow. I couldn't find any work. None of my brothers could either. So I caught a ride to Hennessy and went to the welfare office handling the 3C enrollment. They signed me up and were really glad to get someone who'd made it through high school. So many of the boys couldn't read or write. The pay would be $30 a month with 25 of that going to help the family make do at home. A dollar a day. <laughs> I never saw so much money. I passed my physical with the only note being I was too thin. We were all thin. <laughs> you don't get fat eating crow. I was given a train ticket and a sack lunch. And I was on my way to Oklahoma City to work on the Soil Conservation Service camp. My number was 2501156. I answered to 156. We were turning into lean, mean machines. $5 a month was plenty to live off of, considering we had a place to live three meals a day, and clothes. I used to only get one new pair of pants and shoes a year. <laughs> we were given shoes, shirts, pants, underwear, and, and even a coat. 
we had the dignity of being able to work. We had hope. But then that announcement came, Mr. Roosevelt telling us about Pearl Harbor. When that announcement came, we still had hope. As soon as war was declared, they called all of us three sea boys to the camp and swore us in. It's a good thing we had become lean, mean machines because our next service would be somewhere overseas. Those chats were important. The radio was so important, it was our connection to the world. It brought us music with the big bands of the day like Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller. It brought us Jack Benny and Fibber McGee. And in those dark times when the Nazis were using propaganda to make us believe we were losing the war, we had voices like Edward R. Murrow, who reported from where the action was happening. Sometimes you could hear the gunfire and bombs drop right there on the radio. During those scary times, with fear too big to carry alone, we sat together again around the radio for another fireside chat and drew strength as Mr. Roosevelt said those wise words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. My generation did what was needed to be done to dispel fear and to keep our country and family safe. It wasn't what I always wanted to do, but isn't a little sacrifice and discomfort worth keeping our loved ones protected? I joined the service at 20, wanting to see the world. I was stationed at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, all of 800 miles away. Next, they sent me to Monmouth, New Jersey, 400 miles closer. And then, next they sent me to Fort Detrick, Maryland, where you train for chemical warfare. Yeah, three duty stations, and this last one put me even 250 miles closer to home. I finally got word that they were going to send me to Korea for a training, and I was all excited. Then, someone comes in and says, good news, the Army's put a freeze on travel for now. So old John spent his entire trip around the world at Fort Detrick, Maryland. I was too young for World War II, but I served a decade later, just in time for Korea. But I won't talk about that, because I know what you really want to hear. See, I... I served with Elvis Presley in Friedberg, Germany, when I was with the tank command. He was a sharp soldier. I was in Company D and uh, Elvis was in Company B, 32nd Armored Division. <laughs> when we heard he was coming, we weren't sure what we'd get. Listen, I'm here just like every other soldier. I don't want favors. I want to do everything everybody else does. I'd see him painting posts and uh, other grunt work like everyone else. I've eaten in the mess hall where he was washing pots and pans. I've seen him walk the guard carrying an M1 rifle. 
I admired him for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. He served 18 months and went back stateside to be a movie star and a rock and roll singer again. Elvis has left the building. I stayed and put in nine years in Germany. I'd, I'd signed up to be in longer, but I was needed back home. Excuse me, I'm looking for Bob Powers. We was getting ready to load the tank back on the flat cars and uh, a Red Cross worker came to see me. Bob, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. There's been an explosion at the Eastman chemical plant. I know. My wife said she saw something about it on the news. Bob, your father was at work when it happened. And he was killed in the explosion. Your commander has set us up with his driver and cut orders to get you out of here tonight. They had a courier plane that was going back to home station and I, I got a ride on it. There weren't nobody there to take me home. I, I had to walk about two miles to where I lived. I, I still couldn't believe it. Not till I walked up the steps to my house and my sister talked to me. The funeral made it real. Well, I went back to Germany right after because I'd extended for another year. They didn't hold me to it. I was allowed to go back home and help take care of family. Like my father, I went down to Eastman. It was hard, but uh, they had the best pay. I turned my application in on Friday, and on Monday, I went to work. <laughs> and stayed there for 31 years. My grandfather, he really saw changes happen in his generation. He was born in 1893 and grew up at the turn of the century. He cowboyed out in West Texas when it was covered with buffalo grass up to your thigh. They ran Mexican cattle on that land and overgrazed it. Now you see is mesquite and dust. It's one of my greatest disappointments. They misused the land. Didn't think about the next generation or the impact they'd have on it. Always gotta think ahead. Grandpa wasn't one to sit and reminisce much. You got his stories as you worked with him and they'd come out. One day we were riding around in an Ash Metropolitan, heading out to check on some fences. As we were driving down the road, a car came by, a teenager. He had glass pax pipes and they were so loud that it rattled the windows on the car. Hmm, every generation has his noisemaker. Uh, what do you mean, Grandpa? I remember when I was a young man, We'd ride into town, whooping and hollering, bring our horses to a screech and stop, and tie them up. We'd loosen our spurs so they'd jingle off the boardwalk. We walked up and down that boardwalk, jingling all day long. Yeah, every generation has his noisemaker. I thought about it, and that's really pretty perceptive, you know. I hadn't thought about it. The generation today has ringtones that go off everywhere. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> you know what the city manager worried so much about in those days? No, what? 
what they were going to do with all that horse manure when the town grew. Funny what some people worry about. They were trying to solve the wrong problem. See, they weren't looking forward to the next generation at all. Sometimes you got to let go of the things you're carrying so you can see what might be next. Or else you'll find yourself worrying over a bunch of manure that doesn't matter at all. He was quite a philosopher. As you think about it, how many times have we worried about things that really didn't matter? We didn't need to worry. He saw our nation change like no one else. He went from horse and buggy days to space travel, and he took it all in stride. I hope someday that I'll have the wisdom to move from where I am into an uncertain future with such grace. We're here right now. What will this time say about us as a generation? Will we do great things in this great time of crisis? The future will tell. And our past shows us that we have met greatness with grace before. We can do it again. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown Radio Show, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City and available as a podcast at Storytown. Now, I want to remind you that all of the stories performed tonight come from real people right here in the area. We ask them, what's important to you? And tell me about an extraordinary time you lived through. It is so good to hear these stories, especially right now, as we're living through our own shared extraordinary experience. We're living through history, just like them. To give us an historical look at this time of great change, we go to our friends with the Heritage Alliance for one of our favorite segments, Ask the Historian. Anja Fellers-Mason has pulled together some voices from World War I on the home front for a closer look. World War I, the war to end all wars, engulfed Europe from July 28, 1914 through November 11, 1918. The United States officially entered the fray on April 6, 1917. By war's end, over 4 million American soldiers had served. Over 100,000 soldiers were lost to combat, injury, and disease. The Selective Service Act of 1917 required all males between the ages of 21 and 30 to register for military service. The age limits were later extended to 18 and 45, and over 2 million men registered for the draft. Over 5,000 men were registered in Washington County, Tennessee. 58 of those men never returned home. 19 of those soldiers were from Jonesboro. The war was brutal on the Western and Eastern fronts. Back on the home front, there was a duty to fund the war through the purchase of Liberty Bonds and Liberty Stamps. All of the following sources are taken straight from the Herald and Tribune. A report compiled from the Office of the State War Savings Director, T.R. Preston from Chattanooga, shows that up to September 1st, Washington County ranks seventh among the 96 counties in our state for the sale of these war savings stamps. The sales for the county amounted to $360,525.75 or a per capita of $10.73 for each of its 33,611 inhabitants. Of the Upper East Tennessee counties, Washington County leads them all. The per capita of some of their sister counties 
falls as low as $2.75. The total face value of these stamps or bonds sold in the state up to September 1st amounted to $17,401,587.33. In addition, Washington County women under the guidance and direction of Mrs. E.M. Slack collected canned goods for the boys in the training camps to help supplement their Thanksgiving dinner. Washington County raised the third largest amount in the entire state. Thank you, but there is so much more to do. You can help suffering Belgians. The Jonesboro chapter of the Red Cross has been asked to collect 5,205 pounds of clothing for Belgian sufferers. Any kind of clothing, shoes, caps, hats, clothing for men, women, babies, and children for all ages is needed. Any kind of clothing that is usable will be accepted. The campaign for the collection of this clothing is open from September 23rd to 30th. All auxiliaries and all persons in the county are earnestly appealed to for help in this campaign. Look up all castaway clothing that can be used by the unfortunate, homeless, hungry, naked Belgians and bring or send them at once to Mrs. Gus Bodrick at the Jonesboro Inn. There are multiple ways to help the war effort and those in need, including purchasing the right piece of furniture. Ladies, before you prepare another meal, ask yourself these questions. How can I reduce the wastage of food in my kitchen? How can I save an hour a day to do knitting or Red Cross work for Uncle Sam? How can I save my energy so as to be better able to help Uncle Sam? The Napanee Dutch Kitchenette is one answer. The Napanee Kitchenette enables you to place every kitchen utensil so that it is within easy reach while seated at the sliding table of the kitchenette. It enables you to prepare an entire meal without having to walk backward and forward from one place to another in your kitchen as is ordinarily necessary. These two factors alone will enable you to save a day in doing kitchen work. Because all the food can be prepared and kept at one place, it reduces the wastage of food. This is another big item to be considered. The Dutch kitchenette should be in every kitchen because it conserves food, time, and energy. It makes the kitchen look more attractive and transforms kitchen drudgery into a pleasure. Have a Dutch kitchenette delivered to your home on our easy payment plan. Come to our store and select yours today. We will place it in your home and allow you to pay for it at the rate of a dollar down and a dollar a week. Help Uncle Sam by placing a Napanee Dutch kitchenette in your home. Food will help win the war. Don't waste it. <laughs> I don't think we have Violet either. Okay, we don't have Violet. Um, let's see. Do well, we, we go to Catherine Evangeline? Okay, yeah. Let's let's pick up with Evangeline then. <clears throat> Meatless days and wheatless days are necessary, and it is proper that they should be observed so far as possible. But there is a certain class in the country that are more given to worthless days than any other sort. Of what use is it if the patriotic Americans observe the days designated by the government for the conservation of food? 
If worthless, idle loafers hang around street corners and stores and depots in the rural districts and consume that which others produce. What right has the government to draft the flower of the land and send them to the front and permit a lot of drones worthless, no account barnacles of society who happen to be over the draft age to remain at home in perfect security, not only refusing to help fight the battles of their country, but imposing their worthless presence, a burden upon the efforts of others. The preachers, the papers, and the people of this country seem very much afraid that the boys in khaki will get into devilment in France from which they should be protected. The trouble is, we are thinking too much about what may happen and too little about what is happening. The boys in uniform are not dreading the dangers of what is ahead of them, but what is behind. Assure them that the loafers at home will be put to work producing something for them to fight with, and there need be no fear of what will happen when they are strung cut in France. The lessons of World War I and its ramifications are still felt today, 100 years later. Let us never forget. We remember all those who served both abroad and on the home front. We remember the families who rationed food and the women who led canned food drives. We remember the 58 soldiers from Washington County who perished during the Great War. Thank you, Anne. As we're now looking at food processing plants slowing operations somewhat, some of us are also looking into the meatless day option, and many of us are cooking to make meals into leftovers. Some of us have started our own versions of victory gardens to sustain our families. Great times ask us to consider making changes. It's how the human spirit has adapted and survived through the ages. Now here's another memory, stretching back to World War I and World War II, that holds a lesson for us today as we continue tonight's stories. My grandfather joined the Navy in World War I. He was stationed at the Brooklyn Naval Shipyard for a long time, and he went back and forth across, I don't know how many times. On one of those trips, they'd been out to sea for a long time and running low on food. And so they cooked their mascot. The ship's mascot was a goat. They cooked it on a shovel in the boiler and ate it. He was a machinist mate, worked on the boilers and the steam engines. One thing that was really good about that, it helped our whole family, was when he came back from the war. He was hired by a cotton mill in Georgia. And the main reason he was hired was because he knew about steam engines. So that kept my family safe through the Depression because he never lost his job. My dad joined in World War II. He didn't talk much about his experience. He wanted to put it behind him. But when he got home, see, he was interested in textiles because of Grandpa. So Daddy went to college on the GI Bill and studied textile engineering and got recruited at Eastman. So it may sound strange, but in a way, when my grandfather and father fought in the war, the things they learned helped make their lives better in the end. Even if they don't like to talk about what's in between the overcoming the hardships and overcoming fear. And coming out stronger than ever, though some things are harder to come out of than others. Some things you carry with you the rest of your life and you can't put it down, not for anything. 
I have six living children and an angel. My oldest daughter is about to become 37 and five following after, about every two years to the youngest to 28. And then I have my Caleb, who's my angel. He would be 26. He was a beautiful baby. He looked just like his daddy. In just eight weeks, he became very spoiled. He had us at six o'clock every night. No matter what I was doing, I had to take him outside to go for a walk or he would not stop crying. And then September 7th, we went to the store and got his formula and he met the neighbor lady just laughing and smiling. And then we went for his walk at six o'clock. Caleb's older brothers had learned the song, I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And they would stand behind him in his swing and sing. I put him to bed. Later that night, he started fussing and I was so tired. You know, I had the other five kids taking care of him. And I just was, you know, I was like, Caleb, please give mommy a break. And he settled down. The next morning I got up, I got his sisters off to school. The boys were out playing and I came back in because Caleb never slept this late. I went in, what are you gonna do, sleepyhead? Sleep your life away? And I noticed then that something wasn't right. I picked him up and turned him around, you know, cause I had him on his belly like you were supposed to do so they didn't choke and, and, and he was gone. SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. I still don't have the words to describe the pain and grief. The words I wish I had are the ones I wish I'd spoken. Now, before I hang up the phone with any of my children or see them off after a visit, the last words I say are, I love you. Because in this great world that we do not understand, those are the best words to leave with. Anything else is just too much to carry. My generation is about abundant love and strength beyond measure. And that was my mother, fearless and strong beyond measure. Or so it seemed to me. So was my father. Now they met by chance or by fate, if you believe in fairy tales, which I do, being half Irish, it's a requirement. My mother, Ida, was young, a teenager, living on a small farm in Ireland when her mother died. It was during the war and she knew she'd need to find a job somewhere in the city to take care of herself. She moved first to County Atrium near Belfast, but it held nothing for her. She jumped a cattle ship to London, England, to begin her life adventure. She worked as a waitress at the Royal OC, and while there, she met a GI, my father. He had come to England for compassionate leave after his brother Craig, a bombardier, died in one of his missions and was buried at the Cambridge Military Cemetery. My father, being new in town, couldn't find it. He asked my mother for directions, and she, being Irish, decided to just take him. They walked together until they got to the gate where he went in alone to sit by the grave. She was no kin to him, but she still cried. She knew about loss too. After two weeks of compassionate leave, he had to go back to the war. But by then, 
the two of them had fallen in love. He'd visit her every day and bring her flowers. And on the last day, he asked her to marry him. They did, and the next morning, he flew back to join the fight. She said, Johnny, I promise I'll pray for you each night. And he said, Ida, you do that till you're back in my sight. She was more than just a war bride. It was a lasting love, and they'd both have to wait for it to be fulfilled. Even after the war ended, they couldn't be reunited. There were thousands of war brides boarding ships heading for America. She boarded for the long voyage, knowing that any bride left standing husbandless at the dock would be sent back to port and go back to their own country. This happened a lot. Dad made it home. Mom joined him a year later on a ship filled with war brides, many of whom were turned back round right to Europe when no one met them at the dock. I remember my dad as a young, strong man. I never got to see him grow old. He had a heart condition. My mother said it was because it was too big and he tried to carry the world in it. But he and mother were together long enough to show me what true love really looks like. The family still gets together at reunions and holidays to tell the story of Ida and Johnny and a love that has lasted through the ages. Ida and Johnny, I remember you. You make me proud. One life makes a difference and lights a way in the world. During this time when so many lights seem to be blinking out just as they did during the last pandemic, the last world war, and the world war before that, continue to hold this in mind. Those lights, no matter how briefly they lit the way here on earth, they mattered. They made a difference. Our job in their absence is to continue to be the light and brighten the path of others along the way to carry each other forward into a new, brighter future. From all of us at Storytown, good night until we see you again. Until then, be well, stay healthy, and keep lighting the way.